It's great to hear that you and your family are going to the Walt Disney World Resort for Christmas. Mrs. Claus and I always make a special visit there on Christmas Day. So don't worry, I'll find you. Once upon a time, in a magic land, a Christmas celebration was held. Mickey, Minnie, and all their friends were there to share their favorite holiday stories. At the World Showcase, you could learn a different Christmas greeting in each showcase. Feliz Navidad! Christmas! Joyeux Noël! Karen, you and your family are in for a big treat. My friends there work very hard to get ready for all the Christmas festivities. W Radio, your information station. Hello, everybody. Happy holidays and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 306 for the week of December 23rd, 2012. Whether you celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus, or just the season, I hope you are spending time with family and friends this holiday. And you know that you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not, and I'm here to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience and bring you a little bit of Disney magic to whenever, wherever you are with this podcast, videos, blog, live broadcasts, events, my trivia books and CDs and more. You can find it all over at www.radio.com. So this week, I want to introduce you to a person whose name you may not recognize, but whose work you've undoubtedly have enjoyed. As a show writer for Walt Disney Imagineering, his work included many of the stories and details in the queue of the Jungle Cruise, Pecos Bills, One Man's Dream, Disney's Animal Kingdom, Space Mountain, Pop Century, Pal Mickey, The Adventurers Club, the Disney Cruise Line, the Walt Disney World Railroad, and much, much more. So I'm excited to share with you my conversation with storyteller Daryl Pickett. We'll discuss his personal journey from dreamer to cast member to Imagineer, talk about his wide scope of work, offer guidance to future Imagineers, and much more. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, and then I have some announcements at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. So in addition to helping you have a better Walt Disney World vacation experience and helping you try and enhance your enjoyment and appreciation of the parks, I also like introducing you to some of the people who make what we like to call Disney magic happen. From artists to legends to cast members in the parks and those behind the scenes, I believe that hearing their stories in their own words is one of the best ways to learn about who they are and their contributions and a little bit more about the parks that we enjoy so much. So today, I'm gonna to share with you my conversation with someone whose name you may not recognize, 
but whose work is still enjoyed throughout the Disney parks, the Disney Cruise Line, and at home by Disney fans around the world. Daryl Pickett is a former Walt Disney Imagineer who still consults with the company and who's somebody who knows the value and importance of show and story. So, Daryl, I want to welcome you to the WDW Radio Show. Thank you very much. I enjoy listening to it. Oh, thank you. Listen, I am really excited about this because the stuff that you do, the stuff that you work on is right in my wheelhouse. It's all about story, more importantly, the details. And I'm excited to talk to you about some of the projects that you've worked on and some of the things that I know uh, I enjoy and I enjoy showing to people who when yes. I uh, am in the parks with them. But first, let's sort of go back before we go forward. I, I want to hear a little bit about the journey, right? Because I think everybody's journey to Walt Disney Imagining is different. So, you know, let's sort of take you back as a kid. Were you, you know, Daryl, the six-year-old that says, I want to be an Imagineer or I want to work at Walt Disney World? How does it all start for you? Uh, yeah, that's actually right on the head. Uh, actually, when I was younger than six, I lived in California, in Southern California, and I had been to Disneyland in my very early years. But when I was exactly six years old, we moved from California right here to Maitland, Florida. And for uh, for three years, I think, we were here, and it just happened to be 1971 through 73. So uh, don't do the math, folks. <laughs> and uh, so I got to see Walt Disney World in its earliest days when I was at just that right age for it, that to have a huge impact. Um, now, we moved away from Florida to New Mexico, and most of my growing up years uh, were in New Mexico. But while I was there, I, I was... I, I was completely pixie dusted by my early experiences at the parks on both coasts. And so, yes, I, I knew that now I, in my upbringing, I, uh, I had a very artsy kind of upbringing. I began singing, like being a trained singer at age six. I was a boy soprano. Um, I was interested in, in all of the arts in theater and in music, especially. And, um, and at the same time, I was a, a big Disney geek long before a lot of my other friends became Disney geeks themselves. And I moved to Florida in 1989 when what was then called the Disney MGM Studios was a brand new park, not even open yet when I, when I first arrived here. And so after having been in New Mexico and only having these memories of the early 70s of having been here for the opening of Walt Disney World, um, I knew I wanted to be a part of it. I knew I wanted to bring my uh, background as now I was by this time I was a singer and an actor and a writer. I was all three of those things and thought, well, I'll do whichever combination of those three things I, I could be useful to someone. Um, so I didn't really have a very specific path in mind. I just kind of thought there's got to be something I can bring to the table. Uh, now, fast forwarding a bit, uh, I, I was in operations at the Disney MGM Studios working at the Great Movie Ride. And uh, I want to say just parenthetically here, by the way, um, I started at the movie ride in January of 1990. And it is amazing to me how much, uh, how many people I met there over the years and how many of them I'm still very close to. So there is definitely a family feel both to the studios park and to people at the movie ride and to that uh, east side area attractions, west side attractions as well. Uh, amazing how many of those people are still in my life uh, that I still work with or uh, colleagues of mine or just friends. So being at the movie ride was huge. Now, if, uh, if you remember back at the time, a lot of the buzz around that brand new park was that it would be Hollywood East, that it was the place to be discovered, that there'd be a lot of movie and TV production. And then just 
it was going to be the hub of everything happening in that business in that industry, and that ended up being, you know, kind of a lot of hype. I mean, <laughs> it, it struggled to be that for a while. Unless you were in Splash Two, then that yeah. was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so I ended up at the Great Movie Ride. I was there for quite a while. Um, uh, by this time, I was actively pursuing being a playwright. I was I was writing and producing very small, low budget plays at any venue that would have me. And at the same time, I was doing the uh, gangster character at the Great Movie Ride. Bugsy was uh, the name of the character. And so, even though that was in operations, uh, it was still performance. It was still we were all going out there and, and doing something like acting. So um, I, I certainly fancied myself a professional actor and playwright at the time. And so here's the part. I don't want people to emulate this, but I have to tell you what happened. Um, <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> don't do as I did in this case, even though it will sound as though it paid off for me. Um, but, you know, when you do this uh, show again and again and again, boredom can creep in. And so uh, some of my fellow Muggsies and I were back behind Gangster Alley. And because I was I was an active writer, I was always back there with a notebook, you know, scribbling down notes and outlines for things I might want to write. And people used to kind of tease me about being someone who used a lot of $10 words, that, um, that, I, that I had a, a rich vocabulary. And so they said, well, Daryl, why don't you rewrite the entire spiel for The Great Movie Ride just for fun and do it in your own <laughs> idiom? You know, do it in the words you would use. And so I made the most ridiculously overdone, overblown script that that you wouldn't have time to actually deliver in, in real life during the 20 minutes of the ride. It would have taken you 35 minutes to say. And um, it, it, and it was on purpose. It was, it was absurd and overinflated and uh, kind of a combination of Shakespeare and uh, uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, uh, <laughs> um, uh, Jean Genet or something like that, or uh, Samuel Beckett. It was kind of absurdist meets uh, classic. And it was uh, on purpose I was trying to show off anything I knew about literature or, or theater or history or anything like that. So it was really silly. Well, this script got, uh, no, we didn't have, uh, we didn't have the kind of media we have today. The script got photocopied and Xeroxed and passed around unbeknownst to me. And sooner or later I heard people riding through on their, on their vehicles, delivering lines out <laughs> of the script I had written. And I'm thinking, Oh no, no, I'm going to get in big trouble because <laughs> Our, our uh, show observation people are going to hear these wrong, really silly lines and say, where'd that come from? It's Daryl. Daryl did it. Well, sure enough, it got way out of hand. And um, one day, one of the leads called me down to the office on my break and said, Daryl, you really need to get down here. There's someone that needs to talk to you. And um, I went downstairs thinking, well, this is it. I'm in trouble. And when I get down, it was, uh, it was a fellow who... Um, had been one of our show director, show observers during the opening of the park. Now he was in human resources. But basically, the word had gotten out to some people in the Florida Imagineering that I guess they had heard from management. They had heard, oh, this is terrible. There's this wrong script, this wrong spiel going on at the movie ride. You need to get to the bottom of it. But the fellow that I talked to, he said, okay, well, uh, one, people shouldn't be doing this. But two, we think it's hilarious. Did you write it? Is it true that you wrote it? <laughs> And so I had to confess that I, I had and that I hadn't intended it to propagate. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, but they said, well, well, we actually, we sort of secretly think it's hilarious. We'd like to talk to you about maybe uh, doing a little bit of writing for us. 
And wow. of course, you know, <laughs> I was walking on, on cloud, not nine, cloud 10, 11, 12, what have you. That seemed impossible. It just seemed like that's just the craziest thing in the world. So I did. I went and I, um, uh, I spoke to a fellow who at the time was uh, the art director for the Studios Park, uh, a gentleman who is now actually working for Universal. But, uh, um, you know, we had a nice long talk and he said, well, you know, uh, we might be able to cross you you sometime and uh, kind of borrow you a little bit to do some work. And uh, that did eventually happen. Now, there was a long time between that talk and when they actually started to uh, occasionally borrow me. Uh, I think it was like almost three years later that they actually wow. got around to <laughs> bringing me in. So I didn't think anything was going to come of it. I just thought, well, that was just a fluke. You know, I met these guys and that's a valuable contact. But then out of the blue, I was working at the Tower of Terror by that time. And one of my supervisors came up and said, oh, Imagineering is calling for you. And <laughs> that was kind of the beginning of it. So uh, to make a long story longer. Um, that, yeah. So I, I do have to say to any of your listeners who are cast members, please don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) It might never work that way again, ever. I don't know, but I have to confess that way. I just, by kind of doing the silly thing that other people did the wrong show, don't ever do the wrong show, please. (laughs) Yeah. And I was never done with the, obviously it wasn't done with the intention of, you know, I need to sort of get this script in the, into the hands of somebody who can pay attention. I mean, did you, was it just sort of a, I need to get my foot in the door and I'll figure it out uh, where I want to go later. And then it just happens to be that Imagineering calls you first. Yes, I, I think that was it. And I, I think by that time I had some sense of, well, I think Imagineering is where I would most like to apply my talents. Um, I mean, there are a lot of possibilities. I could have uh, I could have tried to get into creative entertainment, which is a different uh, sort of branch at the time. It was a different company, though now WDI and creative entertainment are under the same umbrella. Um, but I could have I could have tried that. But I think a lot of my fascination really was with, uh, though I love live performance and live shows. A lot of my fascination at that time was, uh, you know, rides, attractions, creating uh, themed environments, creating these immersive stories. Uh, that was what was really kind of uh, uh, capturing me. So I thought it would be great to get in on that somehow. But you know, when I wrote this silly little script, I only meant to amuse my my friends. So that was really just meant to kind of pass the time in a, in a silly way. Um, we did a thousand other things that uh, we probably should have probably been let go for. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's the one that obviously that, that caught somebody's eye and they saw clearly a, a talent there. So when, you're, when you do get that call from Imagineering, what do they want? What's that first thing? I mean, surely you have to remember, what's that first project that they want you to start working on with them? Uh, I absolutely do remember. It was at the studios, and at the time, we had... Um, uh, we had what we used to call the backstage studio tour, and that combined the uh, shuttle tour with a kind of walking tour along all the sound mm-hmm. stages in this uh, kind of raised walkway that looked down into the sound stages. And that was at one at, in the early days of the studios. That was one big long tour, and they later divided into two separate tours. And at the point that they called me in to help them out, uh, there was a, a production that uh, ended up being on HBO. It was a miniseries called From the Earth to the Moon sure, that was sure. uh, Tom Hanks produced and uh, Brian Grazer and um, Ron Howard, I think. So, uh, that traced the, uh, the Apollo missions as a miniseries, and, uh, which was a pretty big deal. That was one of the bigger, more kind of high-profile actual productions that ever came through our sound stages. That was, a, that was big news. So when they, uh, when they called me over, uh, the first thing they had me on uh, was they said, well, the in the sound stages, the sets are going to change. The people who are there are going to change a lot. You know, some days it'll be mission control sets. 
sometimes the sets are going to be the interiors of uh, the astronauts and the uh, homes with their families, what have you. And so we need someone to consistently update what's going on in the soundstage so that the cast members who spiel about it will have updated information. And so here's how exciting this first job was. Not only did my new mentors in Imagineering have to look over everything I wrote, but actually it had to go over and be approved by Brian Grazer and Tom Hanks, <laughs> their company as well. So but the first thing I'm doing, even though it's it's pretty straightforward, just condensing the information down into a spielable form, uh, just knowing that these these people were the ones that were right. <laughs> giving a look over before it uh, went public. That was hard to believe. That was, a, that was definitely a pinch yourself kind of way to get started. Um, and I did I did meet Tom Hanks very briefly uh, at one point, just when I was walking on my way to lunch. One of the guys imagining said, "Oh, hey, Daryl, come on over and say hi to Tom." And that was <laughs> uh, it. wasn't It's not always that cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, listen. It's it's good there was Tom Hanks and Brian Grazer and Ron Howard. It could have been Hulk Hogan and Thunder in Paradise. So, oh, and, and some. <laughs> so now, before I got there, that that came through before I ever got around to this. But uh, I've been happy to meet them too. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. Um, uh, so my time at the studios, um, eventually, I, I, at first I was a cross-utilization, so I was technically I was still employed in operations attractions, and I was a bellhop at the Tower of Terror, which great fun. Um, but they would borrow me from time to time, and then after, after a few months, uh, they brought me in and said, gosh, you know, we're, we're ready to look at actually hiring you in uh, as a full-time member of our staff, so you can imagine how giddy that made me. And uh, that eventually happened. So once uh, once that was a done deal, and it was uh, '96 was when I became a full fledged show writer for Imagineering. Uh, they moved me over to the Magic Kingdom, and so for the first little while, and it was really only a few months, I was in a little trailer behind Splash Mountain and uh, just helping out a lot with signage, menu copy. Um, we had a big changeover of the. Uh, town hall on Main Street to Kodak at the time, just little things like this that uh, I got to help on. But what they really had in mind when they brought me in, and mind you, at this point, I mean, I am as green as you can get. Uh, you know, I have I have this portfolio. Now, by the way, uh, based on just the silly movie rights script alone, that's not what got me the job. I had a, a big portfolio of uh, written works, especially plays, theater pieces that I had written, so that <laughs> that was the that was the thing that went through their review process. They said, "Okay, this is a talented writer." Well, did you have any formal training, or is it just stuff that you were writing th over the years? Uh, my formal training was all in music, in in uh, in vocal performance, such as opera, and in musical theater. So, really, I was kind of a theater guy. But I, the more I wrote, the more I decided, gosh, you know, the part of theater I like best is is creating is creating the story is creating. The characters and settings and putting those things together. Though I love being on stage, I still am on stage. But uh, writing was the thing that finally kind of captured me. So I did not have formal training as a writer. My training was all in performance. But then that helped too because when we would take spiels to the cast, uh, I was also able to help out as a performance coach from time to time. So all of that came together. But uh, yeah, I really didn't have a, I didn't have a degree. I didn't have a thing to hang on my wall to say. Hey, look! I came on board as already a full-fledged professional. I was, I was the greenest, most inexperienced young show writer ever, and my education—and I couldn't have been more fortunate. My education came uh, in the just the doing of it and getting to work with 
people that were just at the top of the profession. So, um, can you um, can you actually explain uh, for those who are listening? Because you you really. Uh, you you answer the question sort of what is a show writer and what a show writer does in great detail on your site. Can you sort of explain yeah. what that role really entails? Absolutely. Uh, I I think I point out on my website that um, when people hear the the term show writer, they kind of think of someone who might write scripts for a for a show you'd watch on a stage that has live actors in it. And uh, Walt Disney Imagineering, that's not necessarily the case. At Walt Disney Imagineering. Everything is the show. The whole park is the show. So that would be writing for attractions, for shops, for any venue that uh, we're creating in the parks. And so the term show writer can be a little misleading. If people hear it, they might think, oh, you're just you're, you're writing scripts for a stage, a stage show. Uh, that mostly happens over the creative and entertainment end of things for anything that's going to involve live cast. And I've gotten to do a little bit of work there, too, which is terrific. But uh, when I was first an Imagineer, that meant anything from coming up with nomenclature for a new restaurant or a new shop to uh, coming up with backstory. If uh, you were going to create a themed area, even if the story was going to be carried visually, uh, the writer was still brought in to help develop the story so that you can guide the design work from saying, here's why it's this way. Um, so my first, really the big education for me was that as soon as I became a staff member, I was at Magic Kingdom a brief while, but I was moved over to Disney's Animal Kingdom uh, just a few months prior to its opening. And so that was the real uh, just getting uh, dunked right into the middle of it. Uh, and that's where I really saw the scope of what show writing entailed, because for Disney's Animal Kingdom, gosh, not only were we trying to fill out the theme of these, these highly themed areas, um, if you go into Harambe, which is our Africa section at Disney's Animal Kingdom, there are, there's, there are signs in Swahili, there are signs in English, there are, um, there's an incredibly rich level of detail in terms of coming up with fictitious proprietors who own the various hotels and shops and restaurants, uh, fictitious government for Harambe, a fictitious country, a fictitious nation that we invented to carry a real-world story about the real Africa and the animals in that uh, into something that is very believable. That's almost completely photorealistic. Uh, that just had so many onion layers of detail. And the writer's job was to uh, not only determine what words would be viewable to the public, but what are the ideas underlying it? I got to work with, uh, first of all, um, a huge thrill to be able to work with Joe Rohde, the, the visionary executive designer for Disney's Animal Kingdom, and uh, his main show writer from Glendale was a fellow named Kevin Brown. And Kevin Brown had gone on the field trips with Joe Rohde and his team. They went to Africa. They went to Asia. They went to all of these places that they were going to represent in order to really look at that real world up close. They took an unbelievable um, amount of pictures. They talked to people. They talked to government leaders. They talked to people in every industry to really get an idea and I got to work side by side with Kevin Brown in uh, creating, you know, a little wooden hand-painted sign that's going to be in the window of a shop to make it look as though uh, a shopkeeper in this village of Harambe is set up here. Just this level of making the place look lived in and real. And uh, so this is, boy, a very long answer to that question, but it gives you some idea of the scope of what show writing can mean. It can mean a spiel that someone's going to deliver live 
over a microphone. It can be a pre-recorded spiel that's going to play as part of a audio loop in a ride, in a show, just in the background, in an area. Um, so it is a, a huge, broad, expansive job to do. And it's uh, I think the wonderful thing about it is that it's really there on the baseline of creating the story, even sometimes before the visual design is, hopefully before the visual design has gotten underway, that you're saying, what are the basic elements of the story? What kind of creative and design choices are we going to make so that all of the elements tell the same story? I, I love that answer. And as you were talking, I smiled. I may have actually laughed out loud because you said something, which is how I describe Walt Disney World to people all the time. So I talk about it in terms of layers of the onion, right? On its most basic layer, it's meant to be enjoyed as a place to meet princesses and go on attractions and have fun with your family. And as you peel those layers back, there's such detailed story when you when you dig deeper and you take time to look up and around. And like that, you know, like a like a Dr. Columba. And I think about places like Dino Land USA, where you're not creating sort of a fantasy world, but you're creating a place that there is really a, a, a sort of a real imagineered history behind it. And the more you take your time going through, the more you look around, the more you can start to uncover some of those stories. And I think that makes you appreciate those parks and those lands even more. Yes, and there's always new la layers to find. You know, if on your fifth visit, your sixth visit, you you take the time to really look at those little nitty-gritty details. Look at the, um, if you go to Restaurantosaurus in Dinoland, USA, uh, that whole building is meant to be a space that's occupied by grad students who work on archaeological digs. And you can learn all about those grad students by going through that space and seeing where they hang out. There's a rec room they hang out in. You can see where they crash. You can see their stuff. You can see the kinds of notes they leave for each other. Likewise, in Harambe, there is an area that's meant to be a, a conservation school, a forest conservation school. And Dr. Colunda, who you mentioned, is the head of that school. And you can see notes he wrote to his students. You can see things his students wrote back. You can see their homework assignments on a you know posted near a, a display somewhere. So you get this sense that uh, their day-to-day -day life is going on around you, even if you don't see those people, even if you don't encounter them directly. The evidence of their work and their leisure time even is right there. So it's uh, it's a very rich. And I can't tell you how much fun that is to uh, sort of invent these lives that people aren't going to directly observe, but they're going to see the evidence of them. That's great fun. Yeah. Years ago, I did, a, I did an entire show segment on... Dinoland USA, and not about the attractions, but about the story. And people said, "What's Dinoland? There's no story. It's a couple of rides, and it looks like a you know a roadside amusement park." But it's one of those things that, as you start to connect those dots and point people out to those places, it's like, "Oh, I get it!" Like I see all of a sudden the story that exists there, and it makes it a much richer experience. Yes, absolutely. Um uh, a couple things I want to mention in connection with that. As I said, um, my years at Animal Kingdom were really my education. I considered those to be um, when I learned the most. And uh, I worked not only with the people from Glendale, uh, so, uh, so Joe Rohde, uh, Kevin Brown, the show writer, uh, Tom Fitzgerald, and Kevin Rafferty from Glendale. Um, these, were, these were just the, be the best guys in theme park show writing. And to have been able to learn from them was amazing. But I also got to work 
uh, side by side with the animal staff, the animal care and the science uh, experts, the people who um, cared for the animals backstage, the people who uh, do research on site, the people who take care of conservation efforts and messaging. I got to work with them all those uh, for all that time, and I learned not only about the business of theme parks, but then I started to learn so much just about the world as a whole, about the animal world, about the natural world, about the political situations in places in Africa or Southeast Asia, all of these things. Uh, it was incredible the scope of knowledge that I had to absorb uh, to participate in this. So just that just couldn't have been more exciting. Um, even if, you know, at this time when I'm telling people about some of the work I've done, um, the Animal Kingdom stuff isn't always the flashiest. Uh, some of the projects there uh, did a lot of work in Conservation Station and the uh, uh, Rafiki's Planet Watch uh, area that leads up to it. And, okay, that's not going to be on anyone's top ten list uh, alongside Splash Mountain or what have you. Uh, but at the same time, it was like, gosh, you know, we, we brought so much real-world information and a high level of content that I don't think anyone else had ever tried yet um, into a theme park. And again, just adding so many layers that are available during your visit that you can discover. Or, you know, if you just go in and just have a fun time going on rides, that's good, too. That's great. That's what we want you to do. So, Right. And so I, I sort of imagine that as being a particularly unique challenge because you now are not necessarily just creating a storyline around an attraction, but you're connecting, you know, Pangani Forest with... Uh, Dino Land USA, you've got to worry about the environment. You've got to worry about the animals. You've got to worry about all those different things as you're creating this this fantasy world. So it has to be, like I said, both fun and, like you said, educational as well as challenging as well, too. Right. And then and then we want it to be believable on top of that. I mean, we want, you know, on one level, yes, people know that they're going into a theme park in Florida. But at the same time, we want them to feel free to immerse themselves and and convince themselves that for a little while they are in um, uh, they are in Harambe or they are in Anandapur uh, in Asia that for a little while they can feel like, wow, this is really what it would feel like to be out on a savanna or this is really what it would feel like to be walking through the ruins of a, of a crumbled palace and there are tigers here. You know, it's, if you can, you can, there's that wonderful sense when you're in the right themed environment even if just for a little while, you just kind of feel transported to somewhere that you couldn't possibly really be. Right. Well, and two, I mean, you, you sort of get that sense sometimes when you go into a place like Adventureland or you go into New Fantasyland. But here, you have to make stories that that are meaningful because people are, are ultimately leaving with a message as well, too. They may not go in and expecting it, but you have to convey that that important message of Animal Kingdom as well. Absolutely, yes. And... And we had to have a lot of discussions about exactly what the message messages were, uh, that we wanted to make sure that whatever information we delivered was accurate and up-to-date, and then keeping up with that becomes a challenge as, as conditions change around the world. I'll mention, by the way, uh, just this year, I got to go in and help update some of the media for Conservation Station to bring it more up-to-date, and uh, I got to work with a lot of the same people again in terms of uh, making sure that all of that real-world information was right and that we were delivering it in a way that was going to be enjoyable and easy to absorb. And uh, so for that particular park, that is something is a continuing uh, challenge, and challenge in the best sense, you know, a challenge in right. the sense of uh, it's, it's going to be a lot of work to live up to that, but 
boy, it's rewarding. Very rewarding. Right. And those those messages as as being important and meaningful, they're also fun too. And I think a lot of what you've done too is very much rooted in that story, but but fun as well. Talk to us. You mentioned before doing some stuff over in the Magic Kingdom. Tell us about some of the other uh, signs and nomenclature and text that you worked on that was a little bit more on the fun side. Sure, yeah. Uh, it, generally, things would be a little more lighthearted. Um, the first really uh, first thing at the Magic Kingdom that I could really point to, and this was before I went to Disney's Animal Kingdom, was in that very brief period when I'd first come on board as a, as a staff member. Um, they were doing a, a little bit of a... Uh, uh, redesign of the queue in uh, at the uh, world famous Jungle Cruise, and I don't remember if the whole attraction was uh, down for rehab or not. But I do know that I was asked. They were putting right at the point where you load onto the boat, where the guests actually board the boat. Uh, they had put up a kind of a shelter. I think the idea was that it would keep the cast members that had to stand there for a long time uh, in the shade a little more, and the guests in during that that last little bit of the queue. And they said, "Well, we need some graphics here." we need something to put in this uh, little hut at load that will theme in because they had done an extensive, a couple of years earlier, they had done an extensive theming of the queue and they had put in that comical uh, kind of radio narration. It has a lot of jokes in it, a lot of thematic jokes. And uh, that built a story of life among the Jungle Cruise skippers. And so that's what I launched from. I said, okay, what could I put here that would connect directly with the Jungle Cruise skippers and what their day-to-day life is like? And so we invented graphics that were essentially, we, we said, this little hut here is where either the, uh, the Jungle River Navigation Company or its employees post things for one another. And so, and they're all very silly. So, for example, there's a little menu board that tells you, if you're a Jungle Cruise skipper, it tells you what's for lunch this week in the mess tent. And it's all exotic bugs and slugs and things and and uh they all taste like chicken and uh there's a there's a torn t-shirt that someone has scrawled on uh you know offering free kittens very large uh so someone apparently has you know like tiger kittens or so or lion (laughs) or something uh which which by the way is because i had just gotten two kittens at the time when i was writing those like okay i have to put a cat joke in here but they are still there if you go Get on the Jungle Cruise uh, just before you get on, and they're a lot more amusing when you see them because my description of them is <laughs> at a distance. <laughs> I don't have them in front of me to read them to you. Um, but yes, it was just to give this lighthearted uh, building on the idea that you're already getting from the audio in the queue that it, the, the tone here is lighthearted and, and kind of wacky. Um, it has a little bit of a period flavor uh, that this is not the real world jungle you're going into. This is a this is a fantasy, a lighthearted fantasy jungle that you're about to go into. And uh, then you learn a little bit something about the skippers who, of course, are going to be comical once you meet them in person. So that was the first thing. And, and that was the first thing I could take family or friends and point at and go, I did that. And, that was, <laughs> and even still, if I happen to be going on the Jungle Cruise with people, I really have to fight back. You know, part of me wants to say, just let them enjoy the story on their own. I don't have to insert myself and say, that's me. That's almost irresistible when you get to that point to go, oh, did you laugh at that? I wrote that. Oh, don't worry. Now I'm going to go, I know the guy that wrote that. You, you <laughs> think that's funny. I know that <laughs> me and Daryl, we go way back. But, you know, I actually, it's funny because I did, um, believe it or not, it was back on show number 24. So you're talking mm-hmm. probably um, 
almost six years ago, I did a show, an entire episode on the queue of the Jungle Cruise. And some people said, you did you did 45 minutes on the, the queue and you never even got into the attraction itself. I said, yeah, because this is one of those great examples, Dowell, where I believe the attraction, I'm using air quotes, not that you can see me, the attraction begins in the queue and not in the on the ride itself because there is so much detail. There's so much story in there. Oh, yes, a, a ton. And um, and I got to contribute a few other things to a little a few other points of the queue um, where there needed to be a little more signage or where they had to change things physically. And uh, it was just so much fun. And that's exactly how we thought about it is we're setting up the whole experience now. And uh, and it is. It's terrific fun. And also fun, of course, is to go back later on and, and to look at because for every for every little gag or every little bit that makes it out on stage, there are going to be a couple dozen things that we did not use. And sometimes it's fun to look back at those and see the thing, the, the good ideas that we didn't use or the bad ideas that we thankfully didn't use. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, um, and often, you know, often that would be, sometimes that would just be one writer, you know, it might be me by myself working on it, but then there were always a few other writers around that you could bounce things off of and say, you know, which of these do you think works best? And then some things are really done in a brainstorm fashion where uh, you get writers and designers in a room together and you just bounce things off each other and, you know, try to take notes of the ones that get us excited and uh, then someone goes off to work on them. So uh, it is always a team process. It's always a collaborative process, uh, not just among writers, but designers with the people who are going to take care of audio, with you know, lighting or with uh, the treat, the visual treatment, the painting, the treating of the concrete, everything. You know, every department has to come together and understand both your story and the tone that you're trying to set. In this case, Jungle Cruise is going to be funny and silly and um, lighthearted. And then, uh, on the other hand, if we're working on uh, Hall of Presidents, which I did too later on, that you know your tone is very different there, and your stories are you had better be right. <laughs> well, what I like about Jungle Cruise too is. It is sort of the the quintessential cue in terms of great story. It's multi-sensory because it's also things that you hear as you're sort of getting closer to the dock. You not only create this fictitious story about this jungle navigation company and, and some of the jokes that are there, but there's references to uh, Imagineers. You know, you talk and you know we have Waythel Rogers. You've got in the uh, audio. Uh, Winston Hibbler and Ted Sears. At the end, you reference the Swiss family, uh, Swiss family Robinson. So it sort of has all those different elements in there in the storytelling. And I, I think it's interesting too, Daryl, that when we think about, like you said, show writer, people think about attractions, they think about shows. But some of those other things that you've done and, and worked on and the stories exist not just in attractions themselves, but sometimes even in shops or I'm thinking of one of my favorite restaurants, the best hamburger in all of Walt Disney World at a place like Pecos Bills. Yes. Oh, yes. Which uh, I did name that restaurant, by the way. Oh, uh, my God. <laughs> uh, it's current, it's ter- current designation as Pecos Bill Tall Tale Inn and Cafe. That was my name for it. And I remember that was something I had to pass the rest of that project on to, um, to my pal Kevin Neary. Uh, you may have sure. met or talked to Kevin. Um, you know, he uh, co-wrote the uh, Disney trivia books with Dave Smith. Yeah, uh, he was he was there alongside me for a while. We we were just down the hall from each other. Just as I was about getting ready to go to Animal Kingdom, uh, he started filling in there at the Magic Kingdom. So, um, uh, so he was able to carry that concept further in terms of anything that went inside the restaurant or any other show writing. But the name was mine, so that's another one I like to point out. It's a you're right. It is the best burger. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, and it's yeah, it's it's terrific. It's uh, um, we had expanded expanded it, and um, I I still like to go there. Yeah, I do as well. And I go there not just for six or seven burgers at a time, but I go because I think it's I sort of call Pecos Bill the Planet Hollywood of the Old West because it's yeah. it's sort of Pecos Bill and all of his friends are showing off their memorabilia. Uh, and it's a great way to teach people about American folklore and American fake lore, you know, in terms of, you know, who is Pecos Bill? You know, ask a kid or ask an adult who Pecos Bill is. That had to be a challenge too. Sort of this this relatively obscure character that not everybody recognized. Right. Oh, sure. And uh, you know, I had uh, in in my childhood, oh, so long ago, um, I had seen the Disney version of Pecos Bill on on the Sunday Night Show, um, and heard about it maybe in early grade school. But uh, by the time we were working on Frontierland, right then in in the mid nineties, there was a lot of discussion. Uh, among ourselves in here in Florida and the people in Glendale of, gosh, you know, the, the Western and American folklore has kind of taken a backseat to science fiction, to uh, trends in popular culture that are much more prominent. And so there's a lot of talk of, well, is this still relevant or do, you know, how do we, uh, how do we make it fun? I, I, I always kind of contended that as long as just, as, as long as it's engaging in and of itself, it's going to invite people into those stories, even if they're not as prominent in popular culture. You know, certainly when Disneyland was being built, Westerns were the thing. <laughs> um, right. And the folklore of, uh, you know, American folklore and folklore of the West was, was it. Every kid knew that stuff. By the mid-90s, every kid knew about uh, Star Wars and, uh, and Superman and Batman. Um, but you know, I, I, I liked working that, working on that sort of thing with an eye toward, um, let's make sure this is still fun and engaging and intriguing so that we, in, we invite young people to be curious about it. And by having those, uh, by having those artifacts inside the restaurant, those things that the kid can go up and see what Paul Bunyan's axe is about and so on, you know, uh, that's great. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully interest in those things will keep, will keep on. And it, and it brought me to showing my kids and other people the film, right? It says, oh, well, you know, you can go and you can get Melody Time and you can see the story of Pecos Bill and connect those dots as to why he's here. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Also, you know, actually, I think – I don't remember if it had already come and gone, but there was a live-action film from Walt Disney Pictures called Tall Tale mm-hmm. that uh, treated a lot of those same folklore figures uh, in a kind of a fanciful way. It, it came and went. I mean, it didn't uh, – uh, it didn't stay prominent in the public consciousness, but it's not a bad movie. Um, I don't know if it's still around on DVD or not, but uh, I remember being pleased that it existed. Right. And one more chance for those figures <laughs> <laughs> to take root uh, in a young imagination. Kids, so. think of it as the Avengers of the Old West, and maybe that'll invite them to go and yep, see it. <laughs> absolutely. That's, that's kind of the way to hook them in. So, so where do you go? Where do you go from there? As you start working on Pecos Bill, and they start moving on to other projects, because you you bounced around, and I mean this in the best possible sense. You yes. have your handprints all over the four parks and downtown Disney, and I want to sort of hit some of those other highlights well, that you've worked on. Sure, absolutely, um, and I, that was often the way. I think any other designer or show writer, even though we might have been stationed at a particular park, because uh, all of the parks have uh, some WDI offices, usually in trailers. And then the main WDI Florida location is is in Epcot behind Future World, um, r- roughly uh, 
roughly behind where Horizons used to be and where Mission Space is now. Um, and but we 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 were all moved around all the time. Uh, now certainly for a few years, uh, when I was the on-site Florida show writer at Animal Kingdom, there were a few years there where I didn't often branch out to other areas. But uh, prior to and then after that, gosh, you you might be working on small jobs in three different parks and a couple of resort areas at one time. Uh, it just depended on where the need was and who was available uh, to work on things. So uh, that was one thing I, I did love about that job and that I still love about being a consultant. Um, and just to just to put it now, uh, in 2001, there was a, a sizable layoff of creative staff that included myself, alas. But the good news is that Ever since then, I have been privileged enough to be reasonably frequently called on as a contract show writer to go in and do the same kind of work. And I really feel that actually, you know, in the in the 2000s and in, in the last 15 years or so, uh, because of that education that I got while I was on staff from 96 through 2001, because of that uh, trial by fire that I had of just being dunked in it and doing it every day, uh, I felt way more qualified by the time that I came back as a consultant. So I feel like I started doing really my best work uh, after I was officially a staff member there. Yeah, it seems like everybody who works at Imagineering says the same thing. They they come out, first of all, talking about team. Nobody ever seems to want to take credit for an individual uh, a project individually. But they right. talk about how you are surrounded by, and I think this is, goes back to the legacy that Walt began, surrounded by the most brilliant creative people so it's an ongoing learning experience you are growing uh, as well too as you started like i said starting to put your handprint all around the parks oh yes yeah absolutely and and the more you know i've been i've been very fortunate to have uh been able to participate in some very high profile stuff in the last few years that you know uh i couldn't be more pleased or proud to be associated with and um and they're you know they're kind of here and there and everywhere and so when Again, when family, I have, uh, I'm visited often by nephews, by uh, my stepsisters and stepbrothers who have their kids and their grandkids, and in a few cases, even great grandkids who come out. And, uh, you know, it's again, it's that, that, that pull between, okay, I, I just want them to enjoy it for its own sake first. And then I can jump in and say, okay, guess who did this? Right. <laughs> it was me. Uh, very exciting. Um, Let's see. Uh, well, so I, there's one place I want to go because I'm going to stick to food because that's sure. pretty much right in my wheelhouse. Because, again, you were in uh, the studios. You were in Magic Kingdom. And you've also worked on projects in Epcot. And what I thought that was interesting was working on some of the uh, concepts and pavilions for the International Food and Wine Festival, which is like – the Christmas parade for me, like food and wine festival yes. is my, it is the most wonderful time of the year. But this again, now you're telling stories, not necessarily about uh, a culture. So for example, when you worked on the Japan gallery, you've got to sort of bring in cultural elements of telling stories about art and folklore. But here you're showcasing the sponsor, their products, their pavilions, yes. their, their nations. Tell us about working on uh, the food and wine and how sort of, Look, I think the best way to learn about a culture is through their food and sharing food with friends. Uh, but now you're you're bringing the element of storytelling in there as well. Yes, 
Uh, that boy, the the thing that and I have I've had on a few occasions I uh, had the opportunity to go in and and help out with copy for food and wine. Uh, the things that I would say characterize that are that first of all you're you're dealing with a lot of participants all at once, and a lot of kind of small projects that all have to happen very quickly, and things change a lot. Sponsors are added late in the day, or other sponsors drop out from from time to time, and the prime thing there is that you have to make sure that we are both telling the participants' story uh, in a way that they want it told, and at the same time that we're putting enough of our own uh, Disney flavor on it that um, that it's something that's going to be, and it's something that you know your guests are going to have a very short window of time that they're really going to be they're not going to be reading very much, they're going to be eating, not reading. So you want to express as much of it visually as you can, and then where there is a lot of detail in terms of, you know, a participant may want to tell the whole story of how their product is made, uh, or they want to, might want to tell their, their company history. So a lot of our job is to work with them in terms of coming up with the most economical way to get all of that across in a way that the most people are likely to be able to absorb it um, and so there's a lot of back and forth with the participants on that. And they may be companies that you've heard of that are household names. They may be, uh, you know, they may be wine, uh, you know, a vineyard in Italy or France that you haven't heard of. They might be, uh, you know, it's a world of, uh, <laughs> it's a world of possibilities <laughs> in terms of what you're going to encounter. So that, it tends to be just a period of intense activity and everything changes every day, every day that you come in. Uh, I think uh, it was uh, two years ago, I think, that I last uh, helped out with that. I've done so a number of times. And every day that I would come in, uh, the art director uh, or one of the coordinators or the person who deals with participants would come in and say, oh, everything is different. And there would be you know, a laundry list of things that were different. It all comes together. I think the best thing about that is that it all comes together the closer the day comes gets. And the wonderful thing about the festivals is that there's a calendar day on which there's just no question about it. The food wine festivals open. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming whether you're ready or not. Right. And so something is going to be out there for people to see. And then, and then several weeks later, it's all done. Uh, so that's very different from some of the other projects, which you might spend a few years on or, you know, a year or two working on certainly months and months on we're here or oh, you know, a few weeks, boy, uh, it's intense. Yeah. And so this is one that she said obviously is very visual because it's got to be a image imagery. Uh, it's a multi-sensory thing because people are, are sort of sometimes being attracted by what they see, by the, the smell, the food, as opposed to something like a space mountain where here, I have to imagine you had a lot more opportunity to sort of roll up your sleeves, have a lot of fun making references to old attractions, to park histories, because this is one of the things when you're in that queue, you're not going to necessarily see it all the time. But if you take the time and look at the destination boards and the flight consoles and things like that in the entrance queue or the exit queue, there's a lot of really neat detail in there. There is. uh, And you're exactly right. We had a ball just sitting around and kind of cooking up what we could do. Um, now, here's something I, I want to mention earlier, too, that um, among the many onion layers that might go into the backstory for any area that you work on, um, 
one of them that is hard to resist, and you have to ask yourself where it's appropriate to do so or not do so, but one thing that's hard to resist is that there is this rich legacy of history within the Walt Disney Company and with the history of, of the parks. And that just lent itself to, you know, what's kind of a fun way we can sneak in references to all the other space mountains in the other parks around the world and to Tomorrowland history uh, in a way that isn't in your face, but that when people take the time to really look at it, they're going to say, oh, boy, I see what's going on here. Um, but the most important thing was to get across. We really wanted to solidify the story of um, of the building as a spaceport and uh, also really sought to kind of get the idea across that as we thought about it, once you enter the building and you're in the queue, then you are somehow, without us having told you how, you are out in a spaceport out in space somewhere. And your destination is to get back to the spaceport in Florida, mm -hmm. in Tomorrowland. So you are, you know, you're sort of instant, you're in Tomorrowland, then you go inside and you are at a spaceport in some far distant galaxy on your way back to the spaceport in Tomorrowland. And that was something we, we sort of uh, used as our base point to say, okay, we want to say where we are now. That came from, you know, we had those, uh, those windows that you look outside and you see star, star fields and spacecraft and uh, that sort of thing. We thought, well, okay, you're clearly already in space. Right. So let's just say officially you are on your way back to the spaceport that is in Tomorrowland in Florida. Uh, and then from there, we just had a blast. Uh, there is so much stuff that, uh, again, uh, we came up with, oh, you know, more than 10 times the amount of uh, gags and stuff that you actually see there. And then eventually you, you figure out what you can uh, what you can afford to do, what we have time to do. Right. <laughs> um, uh, I got to work with, though, I got, well, I'm going to get in trouble if I name names because I'm going to forget <laughs> people. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, I will say that uh, um, the uh, their director for that project, or the show producer for that project, Alex Wright, right. uh, designer Jason Grant, uh, fellow show writer Jason Sorrell, um, uh, and all the designers, other people, uh, we all just had a great time just sort of sitting together and talking through, you know, uh, and kind of putting ourselves in, in the sense, what, what would you expect to see when you're at a at a spaceport? What's at an airport? Actually, some of us went out to the Orlando International Airport just to get ideas for, okay, what kinds of things are on a destination board? What kinds of information would you need to be telling people? And then how do we kind of work that into our story? So, Well, uh, I think you guys too, you know, because I know Alex and the Jasons, and you are, when I talk about Imagineers and how you hide some of these things in there, I always say, you know, Imagineers are nostalgics many of them are fans first and that's very clear here because you'll sneak in that the average guest might not recognize but those of us who are epcot center enthusiasts will see the reference to a horizons right or we'll see some yep. of those other references to hyperion in the queue and we know what that means and we know that that a, a true fan that is an imagineer is the one that put those in there yes and, and that's the case and certainly uh certainly those people i mentioned are you know there's a term that gets thrown around called foamers, which is people who are foaming at the mouth mad about Disney stuff. Right. <laughs> and I think it is met sometimes by people who, uh, boy, I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> sometimes people whose priorities are a little more bottom line driven and boy, we need those people. But 
that's a term they sometimes will toss at you. Oh, you're a foamer. Yeah. <laughs> All those people I mentioned would fit that category, I believe. Right. I, I hope they don't feel like they have to disassociate themselves. <laughs> No, listen, and, and I and I love those guys, and I love the, their work. And before we get away from uh, Space Mountain, there's something uh, I did want to mention there too, because there's also there's a, kind of a new character that's oh. in there that people don't really know or recognize or maybe pay attention to for one reason or the other. But you had, and I think it was you, had the responsibility yes. of naming a robot, and you've got to sort of carry on a long tradition. Of robots, right? You've got Garko and Smart One yeah. and Tom Morrow and Gyro. So yeah. tell us about your little robot. Okay. Well, um, if you uh, if you're in the standby queue and you have an opportunity to uh, play with the interactive uh, games that are uh, that are there, there's a little robot that tells you which buttons do what just before the game starts. There's several different little games that it runs through. Uh, really, my job initially was just to help uh, with coming up with the audio instructions is what uh what is the copy for the audio that will get the instructions across clearly and then putting some thematic spin on them uh but then when we heard that there was going to be a a little robotic host that would be on screen briefly um i none too subtly campaigned that oh gosh you know i know an actor who will work inexpensively for you <laughs> so it is my voice you're hearing my voice through a metallic filter when that robot speaks to you. And so then, uh, actually was not my idea uh, to name the robot thusly, though I did come up with, uh, the robot's name is DRL, Diplomatic, oh, I'm sorry, Dependable Robotic Liaison, DRL. The robot really is named Daryl after me. <laughs> uh, but I, I have to credit the uh, wonderful guys who let me work on this project. That was It was kind of their idea to allow me to kind of give myself that huge cut <laughs> off back. So I love it. I love well, it. See, uh, there's a there's a, a a full sculpted figure of uh, of a. D- I think our idea was that there would be DRL robots all over the place. There's not just one. That any spaceport, you'll have them all over. And so that robot that you see sitting at a console as you're beginning the exit ramp um, is also a DRL robot. And you can't quite see it, but he actually has a little on his uh, on his left uh, left side. He's got a little kind of name tag, kind of a sticker that says DRL and actually spells out dependable robotic liaison. Uh, you really can't see it from the um, moving walkway, <laughs> but I can, and please don't climb over it with a flashlight to look for it, but it is there. <laughs> now, listen, they brought back the orange bird. We've got to talk to Stephen Miller over in merchandise and get some Daryl vinylmations made, a Daryl plush, a Daryl. <laughs> you have the campaign for Daryl. I suppose so. I suppose so. <laughs> it's a pretty low key character. I don't know if it, he, I don't think, I don't think he's got quite the fan base that Orange Bird has. We're going to build up. We're going to build up the the Daryl fans, and uh, <laughs> Daryl's going to be a Twitter avatar before before you know it. Um, you know, yeah, it could happen. <laughs> let's. Um, I want to. And again, there, you know, we could talk individually about uh, an attraction or, or a theme park. Uh, I could talk to you for hours about this, but I do want to talk about some things because you did also go beyond the theme parks and I'm going to come back to something else you did uh, inside the parks as well too but you also worked at the resorts in a place like Pop Century where again there is not a you know a character driven story that's being um, created there you are really sort of 
setting an environment. And one of the things I know you worked on was sort of creating the big jukebox in the 50s area. And look, Daryl, I'm sure I'm not the only guy who looked up there and said, oh, yeah, I remember that song. And (laughs) clearly we did not. They don't exist. (laughs) That was interesting because that was just a series of funny little messages that we kept getting back from the people uh, that were organizing the project. Initially, all of the songs listed on that jukebox would have been real hit songs from the 50s. Um, and then someone came back and said, gosh, you know, there's a concern that we're not sure what kind of clearance we need even to put the name of a famous song up there or the name of a famous artist. We're just not sure and we don't want to deal with it. So can you just come up with parodies? And so our next step was we came up with recognizable parodies of famous songs that you would recognize what we were making fun of, but you would know we had changed it. Right. And then they came back and said, gosh, you know, we're not, we're even less comfortable with that because these artists will think we're, we're making fun of them. And they finally said, Daryl, can you come up with a list of songs and artists that just don't exist at all, but that sound as though they would have been in the 50s and have something to do with trends that were going on in the 50s? And that's really a difficult assignment. <laughs> 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 to take something that will seem to be part of this nostalgic world that we're referencing and at the same time, uh, isn't going to conflict with anything because it was a big deal just to get you know to get the rights to do a giant Rubik's cube, for example, or anything that is connected to a brand. And you know that took all kinds of work with the legal department and with uh, participants and clearances and all that. And so, you know, when we were at the and we were late in the game, Doc, you know, the construction was happening and they were getting ready to put up the graphics and this stage at which we were coming up with song titles. So there's these vinyl record singles with song titles. There's that giant jukebox with these song titles. And then for the artists, really, uh, we just started to pay tribute to a lot of people working on the project. They were people who were project coordinators or show producers or uh, graphics people or construction people uh, who were deeply involved in the project. We just started naming these fictitious bands after them one way or another. And that's how we (laughs) generated all that very quickly. (laughs) Well, one of the things I want to talk about, and again, this this could be uh, a discussion for its own show, because this is one that I know is going to touch the hearts and minds and potentially expose nerves of many, many people who were fans of a destination where the story drove the experience. You don't have to worry about talking about real people or real characters because you were creating an environment where this old-time English Explorers Club was oh. going to come to life around you. And the oh-so-legendary, and we shed a silent tear, for the Adventures Club, you know, you have to sort of – look, it's a, it was a difficult concept for people who didn't understand it. You have to help them understand – where they are and what they're doing and the time frame and what this exotic location is really all about. Absolutely. Um, The Adventurers Club, and boy, I miss it as much as anybody does. I I love that place. Um, I had a great many friends. As I said, I'm also an actor. I had a great many friends who were performers there and who created these characters. Um, Now, I... um, my involvement with Adventures Club was really through Imagineering. At one point, we were doing a rehab, and they asked me to come in and help them to set the period a little bit. We wanted to make it clearer to the guests that we were in a 1930s environment, that when they stepped into the doors there, they were in a 
timeless, but we were kind of giving it this feel. And so we created signage that made that explicit, and we created other signage that was just there to anything that could just help us kind of bolster the setting and help people to understand what the Adventures Club was so that they could immerse themselves in it and truly enjoy it. But my proudest uh, achievement was right in front, before you went into the club, we added a kind of marquee that uh, looked like a, a kind of a large open book and that there was a sign by it that told you this was the Adventures Club, but it also had a little bit of verse on it. And this verse kind of gave you the backstory. Um, I, I hope you'll indulge me if, uh, if I uh, actually recite this for you. I was going to ask, I, it, I'd rather have you read it than me read it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, I, having said that, I must bring it up because I have not committed it to memory. So let me, uh, let me find it here. There we go. <clears throat> All right, so this, uh, this sign that was right up above this giant book uh, said, Welcome to the Adventurer's Club. And then here was the verse. You who crave danger and snicker at fear will find most agreeable company here. Thrill-seekers, nomads, high-flyers and low, rovers, explorers, and getters of go. From every far corner you'll meet at this hub. The world is your oyster. The pearl is our club. Kungaloosh! Kungaloosh! <laughs> Yeah, like I said, I, there are I, there, listen, there are very many passionate people uh, who love and enjoy that place. We actually um, we had an event there the night before it closed. We rented out the Adventures Club and uh, said sort of our our final goodbyes there. But you know that was you know that's sort of the the introduction to the story about creating that place, creating that real kind of immersive, giving it a, a personality almost environment. Oh, absolutely, and. I think most people got it right away and and loved it. And the more the more they gave themselves over to that experience, the more they wanted to return. But at the same time, I mean, I know there are all kinds of business reasons and and uh, uh, logistical reasons why it was decided that it, it wasn't going to stay. Uh, but it was a sad day. It was a sad day. Um, nor do I. I do not know anything about whether there is a future for. <laughs> Do not know. I, I am in the category of boy. I sure hope so, <laughs> but I have no idea. Well, I think that concept. You know, I think that concept of a show like that, an immersive theater kind of show, could work. I imagine something more akin to maybe a hoopty do, where you have a number of different shows a night, and people are able to rotate through, and there is there is a revenue stream that's coming in from food and beverages and things like that to sort of maybe from a business perspective uh, maybe satisfy some of the things that the Adventures Club didn't have. Because I think a lot of us would go in there and you just plop yourself down and you sit there for hours, right? And you just you sit there and you enjoy, uh, enjoy the characters and enjoy the environment there. So Absolutely. I, the tendency, I know when I first began visiting in its early days, was that I, I didn't go anywhere else. Once I got into the Adventures Club, I wanted to make sure I saw every show in the lobby and in the library, I wanted to make sure I saw every variation. Eventually, I wanted to make sure I saw every performer in every variation. You know, uh, it was very easy to kind of become addicted to going there and uh, um, just taking part in it because it was such fun and it was interactive. It, you know, the audience got to really kind of be a part of it. And uh, so and, uh, um, I'm going to mention as quickly as I possibly can, but uh, 
I've been to other experiences where that, that that were sort of immersive and interactive, and the most intense was one that I visited in uh, in Manhattan just last June. There's a show there right now that's called Sleep No More, and it's not much like the Adventures Club except for the fact that it is extraordinarily immersive. That it, it really takes you to a different place in time. Technically, it's a show. Um, it's a theater piece, but as an audience member, you're allowed to wander and roam throughout this enormous and very rich environment. Hmm. And you can follow characters, you can follow the performers um, wherever they go. You can decide to follow one character throughout the cycle. You can decide to follow as many as you like or just explore the place on your own. And um, when I when I experienced that, and I, I could talk for a long time about Sleep No More, it's extraordinary, and if you're in New York City check it out. Um, don't bring your kids. <laughs> it's not family friendly. And wear comfortable shoes because you do a lot of walking and climbing up and down stairs and sometimes even running after someone. But it had that same sense that Adventures Club used to have of, you know, you could go up to a little cabinet or a drawer and open it and find something inside of it. Um, there, there's this that level of detail of you could go down to this micro level of just investigating everything that's there, and it all ties into the main story. By the way, that experience, the main story is there is a retelling of uh, what we in theater call the Scottish play, Shakespeare's famous uh, Scottish play, which is often not named, um, but that would be Macbeth. And uh, that is, that's what the performance is based around, but it's set in a sort of a 1940s film noir atmosphere in what's purporting to be a hotel. And it's simultaneously creepy and fascinating and colorful and it's mostly mo movement and dance it's mostly nonverbal, hmm. but it had that element that adventures club had of you're just you're in this place this unusual extraordinary place you've never been and you really can immerse yourself and explore it and look at it and find a tale uh so uh, i loved that so i recommend it <laughs> well you hit on a word that uh, was actually going to take me to something else i want to uh, talk to you about which was interactive right the, there's this uh, I think, and, and you can agree or disagree with me, I think there's this trend towards more interactive, more personal experiences in the parks. And tell us about your involvement in one of what I think is the very early iterations of it, which was Pal Mickey. Uh, yes, uh, my involvement in that was, was, was brief but fun. Um, this is actually uh, between the time that I was let go in 2001 and, and uh, it was actually a little bit later that year that that project was taking off. This was a toy. This was a, a Mickey toy. A, I don't want to call it a doll quite, but a figure, a Mickey figure. It was kind of plush that uh, had, um, so, you know, the technology inside of it to respond to transponders that we had placed in Epcot or in the parks that would trigger appropriate messages so that when you carried pal Mickey into Spaceship Earth, then he could say something about Spaceship Earth or tell a joke or in some way engage the kid usually a kid, not always a kid, that was carrying Pal Mickey around. And we had a lot of people. I was really only very briefly connected with that, but I was brought in to help write Mickey's messages for Epcot specifically and for, for Future World specifically. That was kind of the area that, uh, that I was given. And I was not the only writer. Actually, uh, Kevin Brown, the fellow I'd worked with from uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom days, he had come back to work on that as too. A bunch of other writers, certainly Jason Sorrell, uh, did a huge amount of work on that and uh, all these other people. But um, that was the first time that I got to put words in the mouth of the big mouse, the big cheese. That was the first time that I had to write words for Mickey Mouse to say to 
our guests, to our audience. Um, and that was exciting. Uh, and it was, yes, it was an early iteration of uh, a kind of a direct interactivity where Mickey is right there with you during your adventure and talking to you and playing games with you and telling jokes to you. Um, it was pretty simple. I mean, if you had it now, um, you know, it was very simple next to the kinds of things that are possible these days. But, uh, uh, and, you know, that's more likely to be an experience in an app on a device than it is to be in a plush. Although, who knows? Right. <laughs> who knows what's coming up next? You just don't know. But uh, that was fun to work on. I just, I, I wasn't, um, uh, I, I, I was not prominent on that project, but I did enjoy the uh, the few weeks that I got to generate lots and lots and lots of separate lines of dialogue. I'll use that as a bit of a segue, though, for something I got to do much more recently that takes the idea of interactivity up several notches, and that is uh, if you are the happy owner of an Xbox 360. You, Daryl, you are so reading my mind, it's scary. <laughs> <laughs> there, is a, there is a game called Connect Disneyland Adventures, and uh, I was uh, extraordinarily fortunate enough to be able to uh, help out on that. Uh, essentially, uh, my job was to help a team of people to come up with the character dialogue. If you have played this game or if you know about it, you, are, you go through a very accurate uh, virtual Disneyland. It's, of course, California's Disneyland Park and just the Disneyland Park, not the second park across from it or any of the resort areas. But it's that original Disneyland Park, and it is a very detailed um, very accurate, you know, you can walk to all of your favorite little nooks and crannies of the park. But here, what we could achieve in the virtual world on, a, on an Xbox with a Kinect was that when you encounter your favorite characters, they can actually talk to you and interact with you on a level that is currently doesn't happen in the parks, but boy, who knows where things will go. Um, so we had all these game conditions that we had to come up with different lines for these characters to say. And I worked on a whole bunch of characters, um, I was not the only one. We had a few writers on that, but uh, um, I'll, I'll just, I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I guess I don't want to name too many because I don't want to look like I'm tooting my own horn, but I will say the character I had the best time working on was Eeyore. Hmm. So if you're playing the game and you go and interact with Eeyore, that's the one I'm proudest of. Uh, so I'll say that much about it. But what was wonderful is that I had to put myself in the mind of all these different, very familiar characters to decide, well, okay, what does what does Eeyore say when you come up and indicate that you want to dance with him or hug him or that you're just wearing a set of mouse ears you didn't have last time he saw you? There were hundreds of different situations that each character had to be able to respond to as they happen in the game. Um, and I uh, had a terrific team that I got to work with, uh, people from uh, Microsoft, from Frontier Electronics, from Disney Interactive Studios, from Disney Character Voices, um, and of course from Imagineering. Uh, so I, that was nothing but a, just a happy, fun experience and, uh, but intense. It all happened very quickly. Um, it was about a year in development and I just came on for the last several months and, uh, I got to do such a lot of work on that, but, um, uh, it, it really made me think a different way about how things can be interactive and about the many levels that you have to kind of keep in your head at once um, that I had to simultaneously be Daryl writing these lines and be Tigger or Eeyore or whoever I was working on that day and think like that character. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, I can't tell you how rewarding that is, um, but it's work. I, I mean, it's real work because it had to happen again. It had to happen so quickly, and, and it was um, long, 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 long uh, lists of 
conditions that you had to uh, connect dialogue with. Yeah, and I think about the connect adventure in terms of it's not just storytelling because now you're creating an environment where the guest or the the user is creating their own story. So you're not sort of pushing the story out to them. They're sort of creating it on their own. And and like you said, how those characters react and respond is going to help dictate where their story is going to go. Sure. And these characters do send you on little quests. You know, they, they have, they have you find things for them and bring them back. And after you, you might be rewarded with certain magical items and such there, there is that which is common to a lot of games, but at the same time, you're really free to decide what you're going to do next. Are you going to, go explore an attraction, or are you going to, you know, whose quest are you going to fulfill next? You might be uh, busy with quests for five different characters at a time and decide which ones you really want to go to. And then, of course, you collect money and you can decide to go into one of the shops and buy T-shirts or autograph books or other souvenirs. I'll, I'll say one thing about this um, that is fantastic is that this is the only time you'll be able to go to Disneyland and just find money floating around <laughs> in the air, and you just take it. <laughs> That's something that sure does not happen in the real Disneyland. <laughs> so I, I want to go back to to this idea of storytelling because that's what you are. And we talked about you as a as a show writer, uh, being a storyteller, and how it's gone from attractions to restaurants to resorts to so many different things. But you also sort of gotten away from the world itself, the Disney World, and the the physical world, because you've also been able to take some of that storytelling experience and uh, talent over to the Disney Cruise Line. Tell us what you worked on there. Yes, a few times. Um, and uh, I, I have to give a shout out here to uh, Jason Sorrell. At the time that these happened, he was over at uh, Creative Entertainment. Uh, he's back at WDI now. But uh, he was extraordinarily gracious to invite me over to help out with a few projects. And again, often these were dictated by very quick schedules and things happened to ha- had to happen quickly, and I'm honored that I'm a resource at those times. Um, but with the uh, two new ships that were coming up online, uh, the uh, the uh, Dream and the Fantasy, um, uh, we needed to get as many resources together to uh, help out. Uh, the the ones that were the most fun to work on was uh, Jason was working on a couple of onboard game shows that uh, that families would be able to play during their during their voyage and so i got to help out in coming up with uh game show questions and uh content and uh you know coming up and sometimes would come in with media that would be connected with it coming up with banter that the hosts would get to use so it was like working on a tv show except that it's something that was going to be happening in one of the theaters there on the ship uh I also was very fortunate to briefly get to help out with a couple of the on-deck shows, the uh, uh, Pirate Party and the uh, sort of the, there's a launch show, a pre-launch show that happens up on the deck, a deck party that happens before the ship launches. I got to contribute some song lyrics a little bit and, uh, uh, you know, so uh, things that are, are going to be prominent experiences that many, many people are going to experience. I was a, a part of the team that got to come up with those, so... That was a thrill, and again, it was. It's always great to extend your reach into areas of the industry that you haven't touched yet, and so to be part of the ships. I'd certainly been on a uh, cruises on the Magic, and it's delightful experience. So it was a big thrill to say, okay, I've got a little, uh, a few little fingerprints there on the uh, 
the dream and the fantasy now. So that just couldn't be more exciting and pleasing. Well, and having just stepped off uh, the dream once again, uh, we had done a, another group cruise on there and enjoy the sail away party. And the, the Pirates in the Caribbean party, I'm smiling again, not just thinking about it, but knowing next time I go on, like, I know the guy that wrote that, which I know is a bit of a stretch, but it, you know. It's, it's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> I, I want to say I, uh, I'm only a sm- I was only a small contributor to, uh, to some, some of the lyrics here and there. But, uh, but to have been a part of it at all and to have been uh, invited to help the team out is, you know, very gratifying and, and always a learning experience. And any of these things I do, they're always different. Any of these projects is something new. It's never the same all, same all. There's always new things to learn and uh, new conditions arising that you've never anticipated before. So I've never, I've never been bored when I've, been, <laughs> when I've been lucky enough to participate in any of these. Well, because you've also you've had your hand in, in so many different creative mediums, right? And, and even most recently, one of the things that you've worked on really kind of brings it back full circle to Daryl, the six-year-old performer, right? And what I'm talking about is New Fantasyland, right? This has been, it's the, we know it's the largest expansion of Magic Kingdom history. And yeah. when a land like that expands, there are a lot of other elements that it touches as well, too. It's not just that physical expansion of the land. There's oh. a lot that has to be uh, done in terms of story, even in other attractions as well, too. And you had a hand and a voice in one of those as well. Boy, I sure did. And, uh, uh, and it's one that you wouldn't think is obvious at first, but, uh, one of the first things to open there was the new train station there in Fantasyland. And, uh, a while back, um, the, uh, the show producers, uh, for Fantasyland, uh, got in touch with me and they said, gosh, you know, because, uh, because everything is changing in Fantasyland, the spiel on the Walt Disney World Railroad has to change. Now, we know it will have to change for that corner of the park, but, you know, while we're at it, why don't we examine the entire route all the way around the Magic Kingdom? And let's go ahead. And and my initial task was simply to take a pass at rewriting the spiel, the the, the narration that you hear on board the train on the Walt Disney World Railroad. Already tremendously exciting because what has a more direct connection with Walt Disney himself than the trains at the parks? And, uh, you know, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I always say the word giddy cause it's exactly what I am when something of that caliber comes up that I get to be a part of. So, uh, so initially I was talking, I, I, I was presenting to John George's and Chris Beatty who were heading up the whole fantasy land expansion. And first of all, I have to mention the amount of investment they took in this, just this little portion, which when you think of it in terms of the scope of the whole fantasy land project, the train is just kind of a little tiny part of that story, but they could not have been more invested in making sure that the narration on the train and the experience of pulling into the train station would all really tie into the whole experience of Fantasyland and how it would feel and uh, what it would be like. So they were really like little kids about the whole project and even just this little part of it, this little train part of it. So uh, it just couldn't have been more satisfying to talk to them about it and get excited about it. But I have to confess, I had this ulterior motive, which is that as I was writing my script, I went out one day to the park and I took video of the train route as it currently was, just so that I could time everything out. So I knew basically how much time the narration had to get from Main Street Station to the first tunnel to Frontierland and so on. And then I wrote around 
what is roughly now that timing is going to be kind of rough based on the speed of the train, but you get a good idea. And I put together these videos in which I read my own script over the video footage of the scenery passing by the camera. And so I'll never forget the first day that I walked in with my brand new iPad. This was the iPad was brand new when I first took them a draft of the script. And I had a video set up on my iPad. And so I went in and uh, Chris and George were there, or John and George's were there. And I just propped up my iPad and started up that video. And of course, at that time, that was just amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I came in with just this little pad that's not a full computer and played this video. So they were already impressed (laughs) at what is now a very common technology. And then they heard my voice reading my own script because I, you know, my, my, uh, what I told them is I said, well, it's a lot easier just to listen to it with the scenery going by rather than looking at words on a page. But, of course, my ulterior motive was I was hoping that they would like my voice. And I'm so fortunate that several iterations later, they finally made it formal and said, Daryl, we would love it if you would be the voice of the Walt Disney World Railroad. So I am uh, humbled by the fact that it is my voice you now hear on the train. And sounding like this, welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Railroad. I'm smiling. I I totally listen. You worked on so many incredible projects, right? The stuff that you've touched, the stuff that you've done. I know collaborative as a team has delighted people from years. Whether it's the the torn T-shirt with the kittens, or Pecos Bill, or you know nomenclature throughout Animal Kingdom, but that's gotta be. I have to imagine because you do sound like you are a fan verse. That has to be the most exciting rewarding because you are a part you are you are the voice of the walt disney world railroad i mean i could not imagine uh you know as a fan first what that must be like Uh, it's amazing it's um it's hard to even sometimes grasp i mean there are times when i drive you know i'll be driving on the 429 and there are some spots there that you can see the magic kingdom from a distance and it's actually quite a spectacular view and I will sometimes think, wow, over there, miles away, but I can see the tip of the castle and the white spires of Space Mountain. I think, gosh, right now people are over there riding the train hearing my voice. And it doesn't seem real. It's almost, a, again, a pinch yourself moment of, is that really true? Yeah, it is. And uh, deeply thrilling, you know, so... Um, also I sometimes worry that I become insufferable when I meet new people or (laughs) friends introduce me to other friends or family members I haven't seen in a long time. It has to be the first thing I tell them (laughs) if they haven't spoken to me in a while. It's like, you know, everyone else has heard this a million times, but I'm so excited. (laughs) It's the Walt Disney World Railroad. So uh, it is deeply meaningful to have had that opportunity and, you know, just kind of my luck or, you know, (laughs) my, my good fortune to, have uh, met the right people who entrusted me with that particular job. So, I just imagine people coming to your house and you're going, welcome to my home. On the right, <laughs> you'll see the coat closet. On the left is the lavatory. <laughs> I, I haven't quite done that yet. Of course, when people come into my home, I turn on my, my Xbox and connect. So, you know. <laughs> Look, that's Eeyore. That's me. I, I'm Eeyore. Yeah, go, okay, go to, go to Critter Country. <laughs> Walk over to toward the Pooh attraction. And yeah, okay, find Eeyore, find Eeyore. Yeah. So, Daryl, I mean, to, to sort of bring this back full circle, we said at the beginning, and, and you were very clear, you, you sort of said, you know, do as I say, don't do as I did. But your journey 
that is continuing and and I hope continues on for for many many years um is one that is obviously impossible to replicate everybody's journey is but I think your story is one that is inspiring to people who say this is what I want to do I want to tell these stories I want to be a part of this place that I love so much as difficult as it may be is there some kind of advice is there some sort of guidance is there is there one bit of um, wisdom that you could share with people to say, if this is what you want to do, here's a step in, in the right direction. Uh, yeah, I, I think one of the things I would say, there, there, is a, there are a lot of little things I would say. Um, one of them that I would say would would well prepare you. Now, okay, what I didn't do that I would tell everyone else to do is um, don't drop out of school. <laughs> <laughs> there are several don't do as I did because your odds are are honestly terrible if you if you don't have uh something to show in terms of a uh, uh, degree or some professional experience um especially in design and uh that sort of thing so i mean honestly i'm a little bit of a fluke in terms of how i got in um but what i would tell people in order to kind of prepare yourself to be well qualified to uh to be an imagineer or to do any kind of thing that involves this sort of thematic building of story and building of show. Um, I would encourage people, if you are right now a Disney fan who, who devote, is devoted to all things Disney, and that's a wide, broad spectrum of things you can be interested in, I always tell people, broaden your perspective beyond that, beyond just necessarily knowing about the history of the parks or the stories behind what's already in the parks. Become as much of a student of the world, of the whole wide world as you possibly can, because... Um, the more knowledge and information and sense of history and sense of culture and other places and other points of view, the more of that you have to bring to the table, the more valuable you're going to be. In my own case, um, I, I think I brought some of that to the table because I had devoted myself to being a playwright and to um, imagining stories. Uh, I often worked in you know, stories that took place in other times and places and that I already enjoyed that imaginative work of putting all the pieces together and doing a lot of research. And uh, so I just tell people, I say, yeah, um, uh, Disney is a great entryway into so many different topics and uh, things. One thing that's great about the parks is that they are an entry level into so many different uh, things of interest that you might pursue. But I think it's important to know that Disney tends to be a point of entry and beyond what you might learn from the parks and the films and all of the content Disney has created, there are worlds and worlds of knowledge and information that none of us are never going to reach the end of. This, uh, this, this is a world and universe of limitless possibility, and so the more of that you can embrace and the more you can uh, be excited about being challenged to learn about things you don't yet know about, maybe things you don't yet care about, <laughs> but you will learn to. I think having that kind of broad interest in as many different things as possible is key to everyone there from the people who do the lighting and the audio and the concrete work, <laughs> and the architecture, every aspect of it. They all, that one thing I've noticed, they all have this broad interest in the world. And so I think that's a key quality that you would want to have. And clearly that has worked for you because you are able to work on such a, a wide scope and breadth of projects and, and 
how you help sort of create and collaboratively paint that picture. Um, you even, you know, beyond that, you've obviously worked for uh, other groups and other companies and, and other parks as well, too. But you also have projects that you work on on your own. Again, it goes back full circle to you. You talk about that interest in, in times past and storytelling and writing. You actually have a new book out just in time for the holidays called The Secret of Father Christmas. Uh, almost. The Secret Feast of Father Christmas. Secret Feast. Sorry. That's right. It's food, Lou. It's food, food related. How did I miss that part? <laughs> Uh, I do. I have a novel that that just came out uh, about mid-October, uh, The Secret Feast of Father Christmas. It is uh, it's sort of a fantasy novel. It takes place in New Zealand in 1937, and uh, it's um, – I'm getting a really good positive response to it so far. I've been very pleased. I've been promoting the Dickens out of it on Twitter and Facebook and doing live signings here in Winter Garden, Florida, where I live. And uh, those who have read it so far have been coming back to me with great feedback. What I, one thing I would like to say about that book, even though it has no direct connection to, to Disney or to parks or anything like that, um, certainly my own childhood uh, in terms of my interests in, in music and theater and so they are reflected in the narrative. And uh, people who pick up the book already knowing a little bit about Imagineering, by the time you finish the book, certainly especially the last third or so of the book, you are definitely going to see some points of contact hmm. with the whole idea of Imagineering or of, of this kind of you know, storytelling as a way of life, if you will. There, there are definitely some points which people will say, oh, okay, yeah, this was definitely written by someone with a background in Imagineering, though that is not the topic of the book in any way. So I, I do want to encourage those who are fans, if you're at all intrigued, um, it has got uh, it's got pathos. It has got a rich fantasy world, and then it's got even more beyond that that I hope people will find surprising and enriching. Well, I will definitely put a link to where people can purchase the book um, from Amazon uh, on the show notes for this week's show. Uh, Daryl, also tell people where they can find you. Tell them if they want to learn more about you, your website, and if they want to follow you on the Twitter. Yes, uh, my Twitter account is Flippy Shark. That's F. That's in Frank or food. Uh, F-L-I-P-P-Y-S-H-A-R-K, Flippy Shark. Long story, but not an interesting one. <laughs> and, um, my website is called oddsmill.com. I'll need to spell that. It's O-D-S-M-I-L.com. And uh, that is the lead character in a story I have not published yet, but he will be showing up at the site. It's been my uh, sort of my uh, name of my company for a while. But oddsmill.com, you can find a, a fairly lengthy sort of uh, summary of my work at Disney. I've got pictures up there of uh, some of the projects I've worked on. You can find information. You can find my contact information, my resume. Um, you can find information about plays that I've written, uh, some fiction I've written. There's a whole chunk dedicated to my novel. And by the way, I should mention, uh, during this Christmas week, from yesterday until the day after Christmas, the 26th, the entire text of my novel, beginning to end, is available for you to look at as a PDF at my website for a limited time. So you can even read my novel right now for free if you'd like to. I'm going to cozy up by the fire with a giant citrus swirl and the secret feast of Father Christmas uh, as I, I get ready for the holidays. I, uh, I, I hope a lot of people read it. I hope they will uh, find it intriguing and recommend it to others, of course. Absolutely. Daryl, I, I can I could have talked to you for hours more. This has been such a fascinating 
uh, conversation, sort of following you along on your journey, hearing about some of those stories that, you know, aren't necessarily written down or explained. You know, there is no great big book of Imagineering that we can go to and learn more about these stories and how they came to be. So hearing them from you in your own words, in your railroad voice, um, has been fascinating. Uh, I'd love, you have to come back on the show uh, again in the future and talk more about some of the things that you've worked on. I would love to. Uh, and uh, thank you so much, Lou. And uh, uh, again, I just can't help but thank all of the people who along that whole journey have opened up opportunities for me, have been terrific friends and colleagues. And uh, so I'm just very fortunate. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you, Lou. Once again, for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I ask you to challenge yourself to see how well you know your Walt Disney World history. Pay attention to the details, what you see or maybe what you hear, for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Each week, I'll ask you a question or maybe see if you can identify a sound or a quote from an attraction or show. We'll put all the answers into a hat and randomly select one. But before we get to this week's question, let's go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week we were talking about Song of the South with Jim Corcus, and we recorded live at Port Orleans French Quarter, which is one of my favorite resorts because of the theming. I like its size. It's very quaint and very charming. Love the po' boys and the food court, of course. And there's so much rich, detailed story about the entire Port Orleans resort. We did a show about it a while back. But even the lobby, I said, was themed and had a story behind it. So your question was, what type of building was the registration lobby in Port Orleans French Quarter themed after. And again, thanks to the hundreds of you that submitted an answer, most of you got this one correct because the lobby is known as the Port Orleans Mint, and it's themed after a commercial bank of the 1800s. And if you pay very, very close attention, again, everything has a story and detail behind it. If you look at the musical notes along the registration desk, they actually represent the first verse of When the Saints Go Marching In. So congratulations. Thank you again to everybody who played. You were playing for all of my audio tours of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, a WDW Radio luggage tag, a button, and a special Holiday Mickey Santa Vinylmation. And our winner this week is Tim Jeffries. So Tim, congratulations. I'll get your package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So as long as we're in the Christmas and holiday spirit, I don't think it lasts one day. I think it really is the spirit of celebrating the season. And one of my favorite ways and things to experience at Walt Disney World is the Candlelight Processional. As you know, that's performed at the America Gardens Theater in Epcot. But your trivia question this week is, where was the Candlelight Processional performed before its current home in Epcot. So where else in Walt Disney World could you have seen the Candlelight Processional before it moved to Epcot? Because of New Year's and travel, I'm heading out to Las Vegas to speak. We're actually going to give you two weeks to answer this question. So you have until Sunday, January 6th at 11.59 p.m. to send your answers to contest at wdwradio.com. And this week, you're playing once again for all six of my audio walking tours of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, a luggage tag, a button, 
and a $25 iTunes gift card. So you can spend it on movies, apps, music, whatever you like. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks again for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Just a couple of quick reminders. Don't forget the new free WDW Radio podcast app is now available, not just for your iPhone, iPad, and iPod, but for your Android device and Windows Mobile as well. You can have easy, free access to the podcast, blogs, videos. You can connect with me via Twitter, Facebook, see about upcoming events, chat in our discussion forums, and lots more. If you like the app, I'd ask you to please rate and review it in iTunes and the Google Play Store. And of course, help spread the word. If you do want to connect with me, Twitter, I'm at Lou Mangiello, Facebook.com slash WDW Radio. I'm also on Pinterest and Google Plus, Instagram. You can find all the different ways to connect right on the site over at WDWRadio.com. While you're there, check out the blog, videos, subscribe to our free email newsletter where you get exclusive content, contests, information, updates, and more. Lots more. Again, you can find everything over at WDWRadio.com. Also, be sure and tune in to the live show every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, often broadcasting right from Walt Disney World. It's a live video broadcast and chat where you can be part of the show and discussion as we talk about this week's Walt Disney World news. Again, that's 7.30 p.m. Eastern over at WDWRadioLive.com. And while I love connecting with you on Twitter and Facebook and so many other social ways, nothing beats a handshake and a hug. And we're not just continuing our four-year tradition of having our meets of the month in Walt Disney World, but we're taking the show literally on the road. I want to thank everybody who came to the meet this past week in the Magic Kingdom. We sort of celebrated the season there. Really appreciate you guys coming out during Christmas time. Our next meet of the month is going to be Saturday, January 12th. That's during Walt Disney World Marathon Weekend. That's going to be over at Storybook Circus by Pete's Silly Sideshow. Before that, I'm going to be on the road in Las Vegas Friday, January 4th. I'm going to speak out at New Media Expo. If you're out in Las Vegas, you're welcome to join us Friday night over at Caesars Palace. For more information to RSVP, and again, anybody and everybody is welcome. Bring the entire family, as well as information about other events, including our trip out to Aulani in Hawaii, the Walt Disney Family Museum, our cruise on the Disney Fantasy, November 2nd. You can visit the events page over at WDWRadio.com. Thanks, as always, to my partners and sponsors, including Mouse Fan Travel. They are my official recommended travel provider. More importantly, it's who I use and who I recommend because of the best possible prices, all available discounts, but most importantly, it's because of the incredible level of personal attention and service that Becky Mankin and her team of agents give to you. You can find them over at mousefantravel.com where they go into Disney World, Land, Adventures by Disney, or Disney Cruise Line. They can help you with anything that you need. All-Star Vacation Homes has more than 150 homes within just a couple of miles of Walt Disney World. So if you're bringing the extended family, or bringing the whole tribe down, you can accommodate everybody in a house with a complete kitchen, multiple master bedrooms, your own pool, spa, and lots more. You can visit them over at allstarvacationhomes.com. And since you can't get out to Walt Disney World as often as you like, no matter where you live in the world, Celebrations Magazine brings a little bit of Disney magic right to you in print, on your iPad, and your Kindle. You can subscribe, order back issues of the magazine over at celebrationspress.com. And as always, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, 
Please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share links with your friends on Facebook. And please come by, rate and review the show over in iTunes. There's a link right in the show notes. Very helpful. Very, very much appreciated. And in this time where we celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus, or just the seasons, I want to thank you all again so sincerely for giving me the feeling that it's Christmas morning every day by letting me share something I love so much with you in this and so many other ways. I hope your holiday was filled with fun and family and friends, and I look forward to what the future is going to bring us all. So happy holidays to you and those that you love. And I hope that along with any of the presents that you may have received for Christmas, maybe you got a little bit of inspiration as well too to start pursuing your passion, doing what you love each and every day. And when you do, always keep moving forward. Thank you again so very much. Happy holidays. Happy New Year's. So until next time, see ya. Hey, Lou, it's Happy. Uh, coach, your coach of the WDW radio running team. I'm out on my long run this fine Saturday. And I just wanted to wish everyone on the WDW radio running team a very happy holidays. Merry Christmas and best for this new year. Can't wait to see you all at the uh, marathon weekend events. And uh, unlike V for them, I cannot run their long distances for them. Uh oh, I gotta run. Take care. See you soon. Hi, Lou. It's Justin. I just want to wish you and your family a very happy, healthy, very Merry Christmas. Thank you so much, Lou, and hopefully to see you real soon. Hi, Lou. This is Eric from up here in uh, cold Michigan. I just listened to the podcast with Jim Corcus, and I just want to say I love Jim Corcus. I love him whenever he's on the uh, podcast. I love the podcast, period, but I really love it when he's on. So keep up the great work. Have a great holiday uh, to you and your family, and uh, thank you for all you do, and uh, hopefully we'll see you around the parks real soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. You've got